Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, Brian and Harvey here. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that I am so excited to announce that we now have good news apparel. (laughs) In partnership with our friends at Known Supply, we're releasing a limited edition set of shirts for men and women with the phrase good news custom chain stitched across the front. They look seriously so good and you're going to want one of these. What we love about our partners at Known Supply, which is a sister brand to the organization Crochet Kids International. We had Cole, their founder, on the podcast a while back, is that they exist to humanize the apparel industry by celebrating the people who make our clothing and the people who wear it. And we are all about celebrating here at Good Good Good. Also, for many of us, the last few years have felt like being stuck in a spin cycle of division, terrorism, fear, and hate. And if we're honest, the last few months haven't felt much better. People need to know that good news isn't dead. And these shirts were created in response to that need. Our hope is that when you wear this shirt, you're not only reminded of the good that is out in the world, but also as a reflection of what it means for you to become good news in your very own community. Learn more and shop these good news shirts at the link knownsupply.com slash good news. And you can also just find us on social media. And uh, of course, we're sharing the link there. All right, now back to the show. Justin Zarati's important work began the day that he decided to no longer deny the opportunities to others that he had demanded for himself. This realization was sparked while on a service project in South Africa in 2006, where he met several bright students who wanted to go to college but couldn't afford it. This took him down a rabbit trail to the impactful work he's doing today. And today, Justin Zarati is an award-winning social entrepreneur, the author of the book Made for These Times, and the founder of These Numbers Have Bases, an international education nonprofit helping African youth attend college and transform their countries forever. Truth be told, this social enterprise started during the recession in 2008 with zero business skills from the couch of Justin's apartment in Portland, Oregon. And it's turned into something really special. And I'm so honored to have Justin as my guest on the show today. Here's one of the main reasons this conversation with Justin is especially important for me. One of the most impactful trips I've ever taken as a humanitarian photographer was with Justin's organization, These Numbers Have Faces. I've been a lot of places and I've worked with a lot of really incredible people. So don't take it lightly when I say that Justin Zarati has particularly impacted my story and my passion for justice in an incredibly profound way. I I truly don't think that I would be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for meeting Justin when I was in college. And so with that said, I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the podcast where every single week we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. So let's just jump straight into this conversation. I am so excited. While I was driving over here, I was thinking about how you and I first met. 
And do you remember? Was it at this church over here? No. Or, oh, maybe it was. <laughs> I've got a, <laughs> we different, have a different story. I have a different <laughs> setting. Um, what is it for you? For me, it was, I was a fanboy of you on the internet. I had somehow followed you on Instagram or Twitter. And then I went to the Justice Conference, a conference centered around justice in the world. Yeah. And I like fanboyed up like at your booth, you know, at, for your nonprofit. And I was yep. like, hey, Justin, I'm Brandon. I remember um, this now. Okay. I follow you on the internet. Um, <laughs> uh, the interweb. Can I get coffee with you sometime? Or whatever it was. Uh-huh. And I remember just like geeking out over meeting you. I remember saying to you very bluntly that I didn't know who you were because your <laughs> icon was just an oh, ice cream cone. Yeah. Oh, was that it? No, it, no, was, it was It was my feet. It was your feet. Why do I think ice cream cone? Oh, because of your hair. Because my hair. But, no, no. <laughs> No, no, no. It was, uh, yeah, it was just your feet. That's right. And I, I think I said to you, um, dude, like, I need to see your face. Come on. Like, are we going to do this or not? Yeah. And, you, and then I think you were, and then you thought about it. Like, yeah, I should. And then you changed it. I did change months it. Later, it I was know. my picture for like two or three years was this really cool picture of, of my feet. feet. And <laughs> well, I thought it was that? really cool. I don't know. <laughs> I had, I had cool hair. I don't know yeah, why you, I didn't do you it. You did. Oh my gosh. You got to um, capitalize on that. <laughs> Uh, but that was it. Yeah. So, so you really, you're the reason that uh, I have a picture of my face on the internet. I guess. Well, it's about time, and people <laughs> love you for it. Do they not? <laughs> they do. I don't know. I mean, that's amazing. Uh, sometimes when I I post controversial things on Twitter, yeah, and then, sure. Um, you wish that it was feet. Yeah. Well, exact. <laughs> well, super like right wing folks will hop on and they'll download my profile picture of my face, and then they'll re-upload it with like an insult attached to it. Oh my gosh, really? That happens to you? Yeah, it's it's this, you know, there's not there's much that like Russian jars me, but it's, it's really jarring to see somebody saying terrible, mean things with a picture of, of your you. face. Um, wow, man, but, that is intense. But I mean, in all fairness, it's because I've got really stupid hair, and they're right anytime that they make fun of it. It's, it is dumb, so... Anyway, okay. Wow, that's a, that's for a new conversation. That's here about how, how, you like, how you fight fight back on that. But yeah, that is how how we met. And that and was when I first cool. moved to Portland, and, yeah. and so in many ways that felt like a, a welcoming to Portland. Okay, and cool. That was the beginning of my passion for justice and yep. impact in the world. Yeah, and, and look and look at you now. <laughs> how long have you been in Portland? Yeah, I've been here now twelve years. Twelve years. Uh, funny enough, so we um, met probably. Six or seven years ago, yeah. so halfway into yeah, that time. Yeah. Um, yeah, in fact, I had 10 friends who all moved here the same summer. This is like 2006. And wow. we, we couldn't afford to live down in L.A. anymore, came up here, and then we all lived in the uh, Pearl District that was kind of brand new then. Yeah. And we all worked at the same coffee shop and hung out at the same coffee shop. So it was like a, a central perk type of <laughs> environment. We all hung out there, so it was pretty cool. That's so. But what was the catalyst for that outside of the price of... LA. <laughs> yeah, it was time. Uh, I think we just wanted something new and wanted to live in a, a new city. And Portland hadn't hit the heights of kind of what it is now in terms yeah. of its weirdness and all the, the show and all the rest, you know. So I think it was just kind of a unique thing. And yeah. I've been traveling and living uh, in Belfast, Northern Ireland, Wait. and li- and, and living in South Africa, and then kind of was coming back, you know, from all that. Those are amazing things. Those what, are crazy things. What inspired those initial jumps to 
places that are not <laughs> sure the west coast of the united states yeah i mean i finished college I, I went to a small school called called westmont college and kind of felt like i i just needed to try some something else and what leave did you study to in, a, a new in place college? i studied communication studies okay um which was the major for folks who didn't really know what <laughs> what, what they were uh, were uh, doing um and my wife is actually a kind of alumni of that program as well so it kind of made sense i definitely like, worked it out so anyway that's amazing okay and so you graduate from college. Did you move to Belfast next? Yeah, I moved to Grand Rapids, okay. Michigan. Uh, packed up all my stuff in my little car and drove across the uh, country, kind of for the first time after college. And what uh, was there? I worked at Calvin College, um, and I was I was working in the uh, the kind of arts and culture department, and so I uh, was helping uh, craft all these cool concerts and art art shows and things like like that. And Spent a very kind of cold, sad year there, <laughs> depressed and unsure what I was doing with my life. But it was an important kind of step to leave California and make new friends and yeah. go through some some you know challenging times. So. What were those challenging times like? Yeah, I mean, I think there I was young, you know, so I was you know twenty two years old or something like that, and uh, alone for the first time, away from friends and family, didn't know what I was doing, and it was just kind of real search for kind of the, who am I, you know, as I've left my hometown, who am I, what do I care about, what's the kind of stuff that I want to want to be about, and kind of where does that fit, and yeah. so I was depressed for a whole year and struggled through that, but Dang. I think it was, it was a really important kind of step in my, uh, my journey. I remember when I first moved to Portland, so probably that first year we met, I did fall in love with the city, but at the sure. same time, I was really, really... I would say almost depressed by being in this new town, didn't have the same people that knew me, yeah. didn't know where I was going. And I tried to leave at the <laughs> really? end of that year. Yeah, yeah, I tried to move to California and it just kept on getting blocked. Like it just, it wasn't working for me. And I was like, I guess I've got to stay. Yeah. You left at the end of your first year, at like it, it sounds like, and it was rough. I guess, what did you do next? Was it yeah. you kind of... Well, I think just to mention, I mean, I just think it's a part of the whole journey that so many people, it's so much easier just to be where you're from and stay where you are yeah. and family and all the rest. And there's th there's a lot of benefits there. I mean, like whether you have a good relationship with your parents or not, I mean, there is just those those links are strong and that's yeah. like that's awesome. But I just kind of always had this sense that I think so many of, of folks do that there there has to be something more for me. I have to like to uh, go for it. So I took the uh, big risk, which now feels small, of, of course, but for me then it was huge to leave. And uh, I think that's just an important piece to it. Yeah. And, and so then being there in Grand Rapids, I then I met this, Northern Irish pastor named Steve Stockman, who kind of liked me, and after a, a week, uh, offered me a job to go and work for him in Northern Ireland. And so, remind me, because I think that somehow I missed this whole part of history. Sure, Northern Ireland versus not Northern Ireland. <laughs> yeah, sure. What's uh, yeah? There's a, a there was like a, there was a situation there, huh? A, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, so um, uh, in short, there's kind of a cultural and political divide between uh, Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants, and That's there's a whole thing around Northern Ireland wants to remain part of the United Kingdom, but the South wants to stay in Southern Ireland, and there's this kind of whole mix in there. So, I mean, what I'll, I mean, I think most people, this was really, like, really, really heavy in the 70s and 80s and 90s, but the IRA was bombing things, bombing London, bombing Manchester, all types of really, really intense stuff. And so I went there, um, and I was I was working for an org called Preparing Youth for for Peace that that was linked to this kind of church program, and so I, I was there. There, uh, working with uh, Protestant college students and then also working in a really kind of intense Catholic neighborhood uh, with a lot of young kids that were kind of being re 
recruited to join paramilitary or organizations and oh, wow. kind of going through that process and kind of helping them kind of not do that and make the right choices in life. How do you do that? Like How that. do you, I mean, because they're surrounded by this culture sure. that's basically saying, hey, we've got an enemy and yeah. here's how we're going to fight back. Fight back, yeah. First of all, you're in a Catholic neighborhood. You're not Catholic. True. And you and weren't at that time, right? I'm, like you didn't have any connection. No, no. And I'm also not from there. So I'm this outsider, <laughs> you know, comes in like, hey guys, we should be nice to each other. Just kind of dumb. Yeah. But I, I, I think it was, it, it's more about, it was more about showing up. It was more about being there. Um, I played a lot of soccer with, you know, teenagers and just use that as a tool, trying to get them just to finish their homework and stay in school yeah. and just kind of just being there. I think so much of this stuff too, even as we dive deeper into this, like justice movements and all these things that are hopefully, you know, helping people around the, uh, the uh, globe, this kind of basic piece is just showing up and yeah. just that alone is so powerful. Just, just being present in that and just putting yourself out there, ra raising your hand and saying, I will help in this. Just that alone, I think is kind of what's set people apart from yeah. are they going to be in it or out so yeah do you have any specific stories of, of taking a kid from that's that's too Trent. extreme i was going to say from taking a kid from being an extremist to being a pacifist but oh um, no but no, like no, no. what like maybe like zoom in on something specific that happened during that time um yeah let's see gosh um so yeah i guess one kind of unique story of that of that time um you know of wanting to be a part of this community and kind of feeling welcomed in some ways and then wanting to just do more and just be present there. Um, I got invited to this uh, bonfire in the summer, which bonfires in Northern Ireland are like a really, really huge thing. And so Protestants build them, Catholics have them, and it's kind of this way to kind of symbolize strength and power. Mm. And it's this very kind of dark thing that happens. And it's it's not really looked, um, it just looks bad. And most folks leave the entire country during that, that time because it just kind of gets kind oh, of Oh, everybody does it at the same time. Yeah, it's kind of around the summertime. And so uh, it's this thing that is just part of uh, Northern Irish culture, which again is kind of really slowed down a lot, but this is kind of in the uh, the uh, past. But anyway, I was fortunate enough to be in invited to one of these, uh, these uh, bonfires, which is something that outsiders don't really go to. They tend to sometimes have um, what they'll call like a show of strength where mm -hmm. guys will come out with guns and kind of show like, hey, this is kind of where, like who we are and our neighborhood is this and we got to protect ourselves. And it's kind of this like really in wow. intense times. And then you got like a 30 foot inferno happening and uh, there's a lot of, <laughs> That's you know, safe. yeah, totally. There's a lot of underage drinking and kind of these hard kind of things that, um, but anyway, because I had been working um, in this little uh, community center uh, for a, a while, they actually asked me to uh, to uh, come, um, the um, people at the center really also wanted me to make sure that the uh, bonfire didn't fall over and then burn down the whole <laughs> building next door. And so I was like in charge of making sure that that didn't happen, which was weird. But yeah, that's terrifying. I, yeah, totally. But then I just kind of show up, and I'm I'm terrified, but I show up to this thing, and I just felt amazingly welcomed and all these kids were so pumped that I'd showed up and I got to meet some wow. of the uh, parents and it was a very kind of weird thing and even like f folks would say to you like you never would want to go to one of those if you're not from that com community and so um, anyway I was invited in and got to That's huge. Uh, be a part of it and just kind of felt like I got to be around and meet them and hang out. Yeah so. it almost sounds to me and correct me if I'm wrong that you showed up and you're like I'm gonna have an impact on all these people and and in many ways, you just you got welcomed into their community and got to know them and understand them. Yeah, I think so. And you definitely have you know kind of more realistic 
you, you just kind of come down to earth in some yeah. ways of just going, you know what, this isn't about me doing something good or kind of e- like even what happens in in the end. It is just more about you just being there and just being present and um, kind of allowing things to just work out in their own way, just playing a small role in it. So it, it is kind of helpful uh, time to, to really just kind of discover who you are and where you fit and yeah. things like that. Man, that's incredible. And so anyway. did you leave Belfast feeling better than when you left uh, Michigan? Grand Rapids? Yeah, I mean, because I think I had this kind of sense of, of a purpose, which is okay. building. I've kinda, I was discovering, like, who am I? Wow, I, I like this stuff. And I, I uh, tend to put myself in really kind of risky situations <laughs> for some crazy reason. And why do I do that? And um, so, yeah, so it, it definitely felt good. Like, there was something going. I had some momentum kind of building in my life. Um, and then this thing in South Africa happened that was kind of linked to it. And that's really what then kind of really took off going yeah. forward kind of so, in a, the next part of my life. Tell me about that how did you end up in south africa yeah so uh part of my job living in northern ireland was actually leading a trip of 80 college students from belfast to cape town south africa uh, with habitat for humanity so is it connected to peace and apartheid yeah it was kind of linked to that yeah so so it was about kind of also you know we were built building houses but then also uh kind of exploring kind of some of the south african transition to democracy and reconciliation and then trying to apply some of that back to Northern Ireland was kind of Mm. part of the kind of just these conversations that I was helping facilitate. Okay, so how long were you in South Africa then? I just spent a summer there, okay. um, but then we had all these student groups kind of rotating through, and I was helping lead these uh, trips and teams and things like that. And and again, was really passionate about my work in Northern Ireland, but for some reason, something happened in Africa that just sort of like gripped me, and I just couldn't for, forget it. I, I just couldn't let let go of it, and um, that was kind of the next part of my uh, my journey. Man, and you know, this is the part of your story that I start to yeah, to know a little knew, bit about. Yeah. You started an organization called These Numbers Have Faces. Yeah. And I got the chance to go to Rwanda with these numbers. Yep. And it's, I still tell people to this day, that trip is probably the highlight of my time as a humanitarian photographer. Really? Um, Ours? No joke. Yeah. Really? Of all the other cool stuff that I've seen you do with, with Red and with all these other people. Let me tell you. So... And we'll get back into to how you got this thing started. Sure. But something that I loved about being in Rwanda with these numbers is I almost feel like I'm spoiling what, what you're about to say. But basically, you guys work with um, really, really bright students yeah. who can't afford college yeah. uh, but deserve to be in college. Yep. And the cool thing is I show up on the ground and I just get to spend a, a week or a few weeks with these kids who are my age, yeah, that's right. Who are ten times smarter than me? Like, <laughs> like I hope to, yeah. uh, I hope to visit their businesses one day, yeah, exactly. or I hope to like uh, be an intern for yeah. them one day. But I'm just like getting coffee with them, hanging out, getting to know them, yep. and I feel this deep connection with them. And I also, I always refer to Rwanda as the Portland of Africa because it's, it's like that up and coming. It's yep. it's trendy. It's cool. There's totally. some, there's a lot of innovation. It's got some history. It's it's a green. It's green. <laughs> it's really clean. Yeah, um, really clean. Yep. <laughs> um, and so it just felt like I was hanging out with my peers. Yep. Uh, and that's I think the beautiful thing about what these numbers does is it's yeah. so respectful yep. of these just like brilliant minds. And it's it's not even like hey let us help you. It's yep. like Hey, let us be a part of your journey. Totally. Um, yeah, so maybe we can even back up and get yeah, more yeah, topics. Sure. What did you say? No, no I that's just, it. I love your next part of your yeah, journey. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. Um, so basically, so I'm in South Africa, and I kept 
coming across the same story. I kept meeting all these amazing high school students that, again, were kind of close to my age. I was probably, again, like 22 okay. at, at, at this time, 22, 23. So we're, we're kind of peers in some ways. And I, and I just kept hearing this, the same story. I kept hearing the story of talented students finishing high school, wanting to go on to a, to a college, or wanting to start a business of some kind. They wanted to be entrepreneurs and yet just didn't have the opportunities for that uh, lived in the slums their parents couldn't afford it just huge huge challenges structurally and sy- systemically and you have kind of the post apartheid hangover and all these you know total challenges there and that just bugged me that 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 there were such amazing young people with with dreams and with hope and with ambition but then just couldn't actually do it and i just began then reflecting on my own life and re- reflecting on my own privilege and the fact that my parents paid for me to go to a really, really nice college. Uh, and I just took it so uh, for, uh, for a granted, just thinking that that, that, that that was normal. And it just isn't. And so uh, I left South Africa having, you know, having built some, some great relationships with kind of a, a soccer team and some other kids that I had, uh, had met. And I moved up to Portland here with these 10 friends. And uh, I started grad school and I was working at a coffee shop in the uh, the uh, Pearl. Did, did that give you a little bit more of an appreciation for education? Like it, the fact that you came back and went to grad school? Absolutely. That's, that was a huge piece to it also of suddenly here I was and I, I was on a little bit of a, of a scholarship as well because I was studying conflict resolution, which I had done oh, you know, again in, yeah. South, in South Africa and in uh, Northern Ireland. And so it was kind of part of my you know passion at that time. And I was getting money for that too. So, so one day, this one fateful day, I'm sitting uh, in the park blocks on this bench, you know, and um, I just get this deep sense that I think was a very like spiritual sense that I, that I knew that I could no longer deny for others what I demanded for myself, that I could no longer take opportunities for me and not allow others to have the same opportunities. And I just kind of, it, it just bugged me. And so I, I just knew I, I had to, to do something. And so I uh, got up, I walked to Powell's Books, you know, our famous bookstore, and I bought a book, uh, <laughs> how to start and build a nonprofit for twelve ninety nine or whatever. <laughs> and the book itself wasn't very helpful, but it was more about, it was this symbol that yeah. I was like, I, I spent $12 on this dumb book. I'm going to do something about this. And then, and so you probably had to hike a mile inside. Yeah, exactly. It took half to an hour it. to find it. Exactly. <laughs> so then walking back to my, uh, my, uh, apartment, uh, and with that, a uh, book and with my roommate and then girlfriend, now wife and a few other friends, um, we started these numbers have faces kind of from my, uh, my uh, couch. And back then the goal was just to help one young man. Uh, his name was Anda that I had met in South Africa and help him go to a, a, a local college in South Africa. And so, uh, I was going to try and raise $5,000 and I, I made up a little like MySpace page, uh, <laughs> which back then was still a thing. Yeah. You had to teach yourself HTML to even like do it, which was awesome. Oh yeah. It was, <laughs> it was hardcore. <laughs> and then, uh, and then we, with this terrible website and I just kind of went around to friends and family just trying to raise a few thousand dollars to help this one kid. And tell me about the name these numbers have faces. Yeah, I mean, it's so unique. Um, you know, I, I just found something like um, the Africa Education Project to be really, really boring. or calling it something like that. Um, and I just I just wanted it to be this feeling. I wanted to have this statement, this like power. And yeah. so I, um, as I was building this thing, and again, I have no idea what I was doing. Um, this was also 2008. So the economy had just like totally tanked. Great time to ask and people I'm like, to donate like, money. <laughs> like, let's start a nonprofit. Like, that's how dumb I was. But it actually was just part of my, I kind yeah. of I, idealistic ambition for it, which was That's awesome. That's where you were in life. That's like where I was. I was 24 years old. So anyway, and I um, so I'm doing all this, you know, research, and I just kept coming across as I'm t- when, you, when you type in anything about Africa, at least back then, it, it was always this 
horrible statistics about how hard things are and the, the number of folks who are dying from disease and war and conflict and all the rest. And I just had this like sickening sense of it. Like that is that that was not my experience. Yeah. I'm, I'm seeing hope. I'm seeing power. I'm seeing color and vibrancy here. And um, so actually thinking like these people that I want to help in some ways are not numbers or data sets or pie graphs. They're actual real people. And so these numbers have faces just kind of had this like sense to it that back then it just kind of worked for us as we were kind of getting going. I just had this flashback in my mind. I remember, this is maybe even before you and I had met, but I, I loved this name. These numbers have faces so much. And I, I, I bet I could find it. I've got this journal where I started sketching out what it would be like to photograph some like unique photos for these numbers have faces really? with like using an interesting form of light to like almost put like number signs like the shape of a number sign light, yep. like casting light onto these like faces of scholars. Yeah. Um, and I've got no idea how to do that. I like <laughs> it. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that's a, a thing you can do with light or at least with the lights that I own. Yeah. I remember being so like fixated on this concept, this name of a nonprofit that told a story. Yeah. It started almost just putting visions of, of what this means in, in, yeah. in my head. And I, I didn't even know you. So <laughs> that's amazing. I'm going to go amazing. find that. Yeah. I'd love to see it. Okay, so you started off in South Africa. Yeah. You've got this one person. How yeah. does that expand through the years? Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because back then, I just thought that that was going to be it. Yeah. I was going to like raise a few a few thousand bucks this to number help this has one kid. Face. Yeah, face singular. And then we'll just kind of be done with it and I'll get a real job and do whatever it was. Yeah. And, and yet for some reason, this like vision kind of took over. Again, when I made that first step, I just think there's something so powerful about if you just say yes to that first thing, that's very, that, that small thing of just buy the book or pay attention to this relationship and, you know, just file in the, the secretary of state, your little name and, you know, get a bank account, just like these little tiny things of how you kind of build something. Then like real stuff starts going, you get momentum, you know? So that just started happening. And I just, I just didn't know where it kind of came from, but I found myself, you know, awake every night. Like I just couldn't sleep. I was so fired up about this whole thing, you know? And um, and then we began to really then think about, man, what's like the actual vision here? What are yeah. we actually doing? And we began to really realize that, you know, what Africa needs, thank you, every place needs this, but specifically, we need good leaders in the right places. We need leaders with ethics and with morals and with character and ones who want to to, uh, to uh, do things, not just for themselves, but actually to serve others. And that's in government, yeah. that's in business, that's in every sector. And we, we just began thinking, you know, could we um, work with college students and young entrepreneurs at this very, very critical time in their life, this kind of 18 to 30 range, you know, where, where I think where you kind of decide, you know, which way am I, am I going to go? And yeah. in South Africa, specifically at uh, that time, there's such a huge kind of crime culture. And so, so many young men, especially uh, once they finish high school, it's like, all right, am I going to go in this and be in this gang and do this? Or am I going to go this way? And we just want to kind of stand in that, help young young people make the right the right choices, empower them, and then and actually move toward a much, much larger vision of how do we empower the next generation of young, young leaders and see huge macro change take place. Yeah, I love that. And whenever I describe these numbers, yeah. I talk about this idea that there's a lot of nonprofits out there that are working in Africa who are saying, hey, let's take these brilliant, smart students yeah. and let's give them an opportunity to go to amazing schools in the United States. And yep. then, you know, like have this amazing life in the United States compared to the life that they were living back home. And at least from my perspective, it seems like these numbers as a special emphasis on 
training students to be the best that they can be in whatever their field is, whether yep. they're going to be a doctor, lawyer, entrepreneur, yep. engineer, yep. Um, and then saying you can invest back in your home country and you can yep. be the best lawyer, doctor, yep. engineer. Yep. Um, and I, I, I've always found that to be really unique to yeah. say, what if you stayed in South Africa? What if you stayed in Rwanda? What if yep. you became the next, you know, president yeah. of Rwanda? Yep. No, I think that's a huge challenge. I think there's a very sort of Western mindset that what we do here is the best, obviously, because we have <laughs> we have the most money and the mo- and the most stuff. So therefore, we should win, right? And so there's this mentality of let's like bring anyone who has any skill set at all here, and they'll be way happier. Um, and the reality is, is that that's not always true. And there's a huge problem of. Uh, college students and young young people from other places, Africa or, or wherever, coming here and then actually never going back. Yeah. Um, and they have huge needs there and they need amazing leaders who are smart and intelligent and talented to actually solve these real local yeah. problems. And so I just think that we had a real emphasis on how do we empower local leaders, local students, local business leaders to help them do great things where they are um, and then see huge, huge uh, change take place. And also because we don't want to be there forever. That's like the whole thing too, is that Mm. every, I think global org should say, we want to build something and do great, great things, but then eventually empower local people to- Put ourselves out of business. Yeah, totally. To actually (laughs) do it on their own. So that's kind of the whole thing too. And there's this huge kind of, you know, aid culture and nonprofit culture that just kind of exists forever just to keep funneling money or funneling food or aid or whatever it is which is great but my goodness like we need we need real doctors that are african there doing their own thing as opposed to having to fly in doctors from the west for everything or things like that yeah i want to talk about kamali Mm -hmm. uh because he's somebody that we both know obviously you know him because he's a part of your organization but i i got to meet him when i was in rwanda yep and he has a an amazing story. Yeah. So a little bit of a history lesson and you're going to have to help me with this. Sure. I'll let you give a little bit of a history <laughs> lesson. Sure. Perfect. <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, a lot of people when they think about Rwanda, they think about the 1994 genocide and without going into too many grisly details, I mean, you're looking at about a million people killed in, ni- in 90 days and this huge ethnic conflict between Tutsis and Hutus and um, it just affected the whole the whole region and so um, as people fled um, you know they were in other countries and this is kind of where Kamali's story picks up and that Kamali is actually Congolese which um, is neighboring neighboring Rwanda. yep exactly yeah um, just a little bit west of, of uh, Rwanda and it's a huge huge place um, and Kamali is a Congolese Tutsi, so he's the same ethnic group as the Rwandan ones that are that were facing a lot of challenges and being hunted down and all the rest. And so, as soon as the Rwandan genocide in '94 kind of spilled over into uh, to a Congo, Kamali and his family were definitely at huge, huge risk. And so, his family—he was probably three or four at this time. His mom picked him up and the other siblings, and they crossed the uh, border actually out of Congo back into. Rwanda as a means to escape militias and um, they were settled in this refugee camp called Gihembe which you've yeah. been to and I've obviously been to it's bizarrely beautiful oh as my far gosh. as refugee it's, camps it's go it's stunning yeah I mean up on this big hill you can oversee these valleys and it really is stunning but um, it's in the middle of nowhere obviously yeah. and, and it's heartbreaking because yeah. there's this isolation of all these people who flood war and conflict and yep. have been there for what like, decades like, like 20 years yeah wow. kind of living in mud huts and really kind of waiting for the uh, chance to someday go home yeah. you know, to their home 
country, but they're just kind of stuck there. And they live on, you know, about 24 cents per day that the UN gives them. So it's about a meal per day of rice and beans and things like that. You know, I mean, it's a really challenging place to live. I mean, you've, you've obviously been there. You, you've seen it. It's pretty stunning. Yeah. And yet what we discovered is that there were these amazing students living in this, uh, this uh, camp and they actually built their own school and taught school. themselves. Yeah, exactly. And were got like photocopies of textbooks somewhere and like, like <laughs> one packet, you know, taught themselves math and engineering and science all these crazy amazing stories and so Kamali was you know one of these students that uh, got top grades in high school and was able to kind of and when you say top grades on high school you mean literally they take like the government standard test and he's getting like Perfect. Yeah, the best like of the best. Yeah, in the top ten. Or totally, whatever. and that's like studying in a in a in a mud hut again with like with like a, a piece of chalk, you know. And just yeah. was able to figure it out. I mean, just, uh, like talent level, just beyond it's belief. Wild. You know? Yeah. But the uh, huge challenge was that these students, though, because they are refugees, they just didn't have any access to go to local universities. Uh, there wasn't like any money from for for them from the uh, the uh, government. They were definitely discriminated against because they were refugees. And um, we randomly just heard about this story of these few camps. Uh, I think actually one of my colleagues heard about it on a plane, like talking to <laughs> someone, and she was like, "Oh, have you heard about these like these camps? They have amazing students in them." And we were like, "Where is this place?" You know. <laughs> um, but then found found out about it and went and, and met all these awesome students and said, "My goodness, we've got to do something to ensure that 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 these students can go to a college and join our existing program in Rwanda and see something happen." So Kamali is a part of our. Uh, these numbers have faces family and he's a part of our uh, Rwanda program and gets amazing grades. He's, he's a top, top student through the whole thing because he got to go to a university in Rwanda based off yeah. of, and you guys give, you're not giving scholarships as much as you're giving loans. Yeah. Is we, that accurate? Yeah. We call them leadership loans and um, there's a requirement um, when it comes to being a part of the, these numbers have faces program. So you need to be, um, come to every meeting you, you do 50 hours a year of community service uh, you're a part of the whole family you have, a lot of leadership you have, training you have a ton of training every single month um, and then you actually pay back a portion of your uh, loan when you finish school back into the program for a new student to go oh, to that's college amazing. behind them. it's yeah. kind of circular exactly yeah that's amazing totally so Kamali did that and then um, he actually got to come to Portland for a summer we just launched a brand new summer internship program where our top graduates get to come here and work at various companies, uh, Amazon, Salesforce, uh, HP, I mean, really, really talented amazing. companies. And so Kamali got to come here and work for a, uh, at a, a finance firm because he was studying finance and got to have a great experience and uh, really did great here and got to experience American culture for a short window. Yeah. And then he uh, went back to Rwanda, which is, again, is kind of part of our whole thing. Oh, wait, one more thing. Yeah. Before he came to the States, he had to get a passport. I remember oh, this. Right. Yes. So we actually had a huge challenge with Kamali um, getting his visa stuff and the passports and all these these challenges of, you know, what it takes to actually get here. Um, and we learned what has to happen is that Kamali actually has to go back to the Congo and get some documents from there where it's still a really unstable country and it's really yeah and and especially unstable and unsafe for him and so he had to ensure that he didn't speak uh his kind of local language because that would 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 give him away in terms of kind of who he is so he had to only speak french when he was going through there and he kind of had a friend that sort of like guided him through um to get to the government office and kind of do the whole thing i mean honestly this kid like risked his life to come to the u.s for three months for this (laughs) 
for an internship for internship. finance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and again, that's just crazy. You think about like what people will will uh, do for this. And that's again why yeah. what we do is so Im- important. And here, you know, we just take that stuff for uh, for our granted. Yeah. You know, so he'll like do anything for it. So that's amazing. Okay, yeah. so he has his time in the U.S. He yeah. learns a bunch. Learns a bunch. Does really really well, you know. His English gets a lot a lot better. Finance skills improve, obviously. Does does a uh, great. Then goes goes back to Rwanda, and even though he's a refugee, um, he's just been doing great. And so he got uh, a great job right off the bat, and then just got a brand new one here in the last few months. Wow, and he's probably got a great resume now. He does absolutely. And he what's crazy now is I think he makes some something like ten times what his what his parents make, and what? so now he's able to pay for his family to all. All the food that, that you know they would need, and then paying school fees for his for his siblings and things like that. And so, how does that make yeah. you feel knowing that? Yeah, I mean that's kind of it. I think that's sort of like Man. that story is kind of the whole goal of what we kind of set out to uh, to uh, do. You know, can we empower and inspire someone in a small way, but then just let let them run with it? So yeah. kind of those small investments and then drive them forward. It's so all him at this point. It now. is, yeah. And so he's just doing great. So I, mean, I feel so much satisfaction in that myself. I kind of feel like once that happened with him. Everything else now is just like bonus stuff. You know, I'm just like, it's fine, you know? So that's been a really, really great thing to see that that little vision on my couch now now play out. And of course now there's there's hundreds of kids just like him now that have, you know, been able to uh to uh, do it. So it's pretty Man, cool. That's so cool. I that just kinda gave me goosebumps thinking about that. Yeah. And one thing I wanna say based off of that really quick is I noticed a central theme in your life has been soccer. You know, whether you're in, I know. in Northern Ireland or yep. Africa or, um, you know, I know personally, like you're obsessed with the Portland Timbers, which yes. are a, a fantastic team. team. Yes. Tell me about how like soccer has played into all of this. Too. Yeah, I it's feel like weird. It, it really is. I mean, theme. even when I was writing the uh, the uh, book, I just kept coming up with like so much soccer stuff. And I was like, what am I doing? This is so dumb. Like no one else <laughs> cares about this. But it was just a thing for me um, because it, it has played such a central role and not even just like the game itself, but actually kind of what it means. And that what I found is that whether I was in Belfast or in South Africa or in Rwanda or really anywhere where I've where I've traveled or worked or whatever it is, I mean soccer is so massive. I mean it is the it is this this uh, game that touches every single fac- like facet of uh, of life around the uh, world that most folks here don't don't really understand because it is. I mean soccer at its core isn't about what's actually happening on on the uh, field. It's actually this amazing expression of culture and identity and politics and there's still like chants that are happening in stadiums about wars from 400 years ago wow. i mean that's still like a part of the whole phenomenon right and so it is this amazingly powerful tool and one thing that i'm so embarrassed by in my own life is that i only speak english i can speak one language basically a little <laughs> bit of spanish but that's like kind of it and yet i speak soccer and it has, without a doubt, I swear to you, been like the most powerful tool that I've had to connect with young people, old people around the whole world. So I mean, any, like, any male, mainly, from about five years old to like 80, we can talk about soccer. And there's just this amazing connection. There's this amazing link. I mean, if I know anything, especially as an American, where folks maybe wouldn't think that I would, that I would know a lot, yeah. I'm able just to connect myself to groups of, uh, of uh, people because we speak this like, common language. We know these players yeah. from, from Europe or whatever it is, or even playing in the streets with kids or you know, whatever it is. There's just this kind of amazing thing to it. So it's, this, it's been this remarkable glue that has kind of yeah. kept me tied in with folks around the world. It breaks down barriers. Big time, yeah. And it's, and it's fascinating. 
fascinating because I mean it's the only sport that's played just as well by the uh, global south as in the and compared to the global north. Whereas oh, wow. so many other sports are kind of dominated by folks in the west because yeah. we have equipment and resources. I mean, if, if you look at the Olympics, I mean, who wins in the Olympics? <laughs> it's like all teams like like wealthy countries yeah. for for the most part. But soccer just you know it played by kids in the Amazon rainforest and the deserts in Africa, Asia, all over the place. So it's just this special thing that is highly democratic and that and that anyone can be a part of and so it's been a really remarkable tool for me to uh, connect with others you are the reason that i care about soccer and i i'm not obsessed with soccer (laughs) but for the longest time i would poke fun at it and tease it probably in front of you you can make fun of it i get it yeah but it's it's something where you know, I, I don't care about sports, but I do care about the things that unite us and yeah. connect us and totally. bring us together. And totally. soccer is probably arguably the number one thing in the world that does that. It does. It's wild. It does. And I, I, can I tell one quick story? Yeah, please. In it? I mean, there's so many examples, I think, of how soccer has been used um, to make great change in the world. And now also there's a whole there's a lot of darkness in it, too. I mean, there's like all the there's rioting and there's racism, there's sectarianism. They're, they're actually very worried about the, the uh, World Cup in Russia because there's so much racism there. That's oh, wow. players who are black and going there. It's, it's like a whole mess. But with it, though, again, amazing good comes out of it. So just on an African context. Um, the Ivory Coast and West Africa have been going through this brutal war between nor- North and South, Muslim, Christian kind of thing. And um, they couldn't solve it and people were dying. It was just extremely bad. And yet the Ivory Coast soccer team is extremely good. And they had this amazing player named Didier Drogba. And him and a few other teammates were like, right, when we qualify for the uh, World Cup, we are going to use this team to unite the entire country. And so there's this amazing moment where Drogba gives this speech to these military generals on both sides and all these su- supporters on uh, both sides. And he actually brokers this peace deal during this soccer match. And there's these, there's, there's footage of the two warring guys like shaking hands in the stadium and you know, all the rest. And it's, it's because they all want this, this team to, uh, to uh, do well. They love Drogba. They love all their, their awesome players. And if these guys can be on, you know, the same team, everyone else can too. And so it just has this amazing power that folks, don't really realize that yeah it like the uh, game itself can be kind of boring and like you can draw zero zero like i get it and yet there is just something so much deeper that is happening through it uh, that's played a huge role in my life and kind of a huge role in, in my story that's incredible yeah you can see it all throughout totally so you wrote this new book made for these times yes and it's fantastic. I finished reading it on the plane yesterday. It has a few of these stories in there, but I get to the end of this book and I realize uh, <laughs> I'm like already on the way to like interview you. Yeah. That you are in the midst of a transition away from these numbers. Yeah. This organization you started in yeah. your 20s out of ambition yeah. that you found a great deal of success in that is making a huge impact in people's lives. And in my mind, that sounds terrifying and that sounds overwhelming. (laughs) And tell me a little bit about that transition because I'm sure that that wasn't an easy sure decision yeah and, and, and i know that we'll get to talk more about the uh, the uh, book and kind of what yeah. it's about and where it's going but i mean the reality is that you know there's something about starting something building something uh, that is amazing there's so much joy there and there's a lot of pain obviously in it but there's something exciting about it and yet i just think that we oftentimes make the mistake of actually holding on to things that that we love kind of too long and there's times where it's hard to do but we do need to let 
let go. And so there's a kind of a unique anecdote in that St. Francis of Assisi uh, used to talk about everyone in his in his parish. They weren't, you know, the uh, leaders or like priests. He called them custodians. Mm. And what that meant is that they were just meant to steward something for a certain amount of a, of a time. That they, they were just there to kind of keep it up and to just kind of build it out. But then they were meant to know when their, uh, their time was then, was then done. And we have a really unique challenge, I think, in this, in this country. I think just maybe within kind of our own human heart around ownership. That things belong to me. And if I build it, it belongs to me. And I've had a lot of kind of in-depth sort of like it's been spiritual and emotional and mental, the kind of all the like pains of how do you actually take something that you love, but then to know that actually there are uh, are going to be others who can actually lead it further and in, in, in a better ways than actually you can. And so I went through a lot of pain to, to uh, get to this place. But as of this uh, year, I've, I've kind of been able to actually transfer it on and it's been great, hard, but, but uh, great. Man. So there's... There's other leadership taking over. Yeah, we hired a brand new director, Jim, and he's been awesome. Man. And um, I'm still involved. I'm I'm the founder, so yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not going anywhere. But in in terms of being out of the day to to a day stuff, yeah. it's been really liberating for me. And to see the org kind of take on a new life of its own Beautiful. with new leadership is is actually good. And I think that that we should celebrate that. That that yeah. that's actually a, a great thing when you can do that. It's cool to think that these numbers doesn't have to rely on Justin Zarati. Yeah. You know, it's its own thing. And even if like these numbers as an organization were to shift and change, like if that idea and presence needed to be in the world, like somebody else can even take that on and they get to be the custodian. Totally. Yeah. And I think there's this huge piece that I think that I, I see it from like a very spiritual angle, but there's just something powerful in that, I believe that uh, we are meant to then build things and then really enable others to then take them uh, from us at the uh, right moment. And um, there's just something about this kind of process throughout throughout life that I think that we just have to know when it's time to actually surrender things. Yeah. Um, and I think that that can mean a business, that can mean a project, that can mean relationships. I mean, there's a lot of that there, but that there, there is kind of just a unique thing that I found that the folks who can who can say no to things and just know when to pass them on and know when to just actually bring in someone who's more skilled than a, than a they are. You see a lot of success with that when various people are, are actually able to, uh, to uh, do that well. And how does that apply in like the story of these numbers? So, so yeah. you step out, so you grow this thing and you know that it's time to, to move on. Yeah. This other person stepping in, is that then their time to grow this thing? I think so. And, and then I think it also really links into our staff in Africa who also oh, yeah. we just want to really empower them to say, hey, you know, this is your project too. I mean, you're actually running all the work on the uh, the uh, ground. It's not it's not meant to only come from us here. And so yeah. to see them step up and say, actually, I own this too and I'm I'm going to go with it um, is definitely huge. So Man. it's a, yeah, it's a real challenge, but I just think that we need to learn how to uh, to uh, do this better. I think some folks kind of stay in things yeah. longer than they should. Yeah. Um, and actually, you can actually uh, cause real challenges where a founder of something can actually kind of spiral the whole thing down. There's a whole thing called founder's syndrome that actually causes huge problems within organizations. And um, But it takes something special to, to uh, be able to pass that on for sure. Yeah. That's tough. I like that. That sounds like it, it's yeah. a difficult decision, but um, yeah. sounds like the right one. It was. And actually, let me tell you one crazy story. Yeah. Um, so the day that I 
decided, right, I need, I need to pass on this. Um, I had a phone call with my board and said, guys, it's time for me. Here's my, my transition plan. And we were kind of feeling good about it. And of course, I was still apprehensive. Um, so the next day, I uh, parked my car near my office and I'm walking to my office and I'm still in pain about this whole thing. And near my office are this whole group of these uh, day laborers who kind of wait out there for work every day. And, you know, I always walk by them and I, I know s- some of them now, but feel bad. I mean, these guys are in a hard situation, yeah. you know, trying to find work and all the rest. And I, um, I'm walking toward my, my office and this guy, like 25 year old kid really walks up to me and says, Hey, and I was like, Hey man. And he goes, have confidence in the decision that you have made. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, this is just like a some random, day, day like labor. random guy. Yeah. I've never seen him before. And he, he says like, truly have, have confidence in it. And I, I said, how do you know this? Why, why are you, are you telling me this? And he's like, I can see it on your face that, that you're going through this really intense time. I just, I just want to remind you to have confidence in it. And then he sort of goes deeper and he says, y- do you know the word genocide, suicide, and homicide? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he goes, the, uh, the uh, root word of that in Latin is side, which means finality. It means it is finished. So again, you've made your decision, have confidence in it. And it was like the most crazy, I mean, I, I feel like it, it's a very kind of spiritual cosmic thing here, but that this random person would just know me and, and actually say that. Yeah. And then, of course, I looked out my, uh, my, my window and never saw him ever again. And it's kind of one of those things. <laughs> but to have a stranger say that to me was this confirmation that I knew that, that I, uh, I needed because there were, there, there were more things coming for me um, kind of in this next stage of my life. Wow. Man. And at what stage in this process did you start writing your book? Yeah, you know so that you were going to transition. Yeah, totally. So I just kind of had a sense that my journey's been so hard of having a little vision and then building it and all the things that I've learned along the way that I wish someone had told me. Yeah. Um that I wish was there. Um so in some ways I And kinda, I was like underlining the crap out of the book with just things where I'm like Oh, this applies to me as I'm building up this company and totally, you know, starting a newspaper. Yeah, all exactly. These Do, and doing things where you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Oh here. yeah, I'm like you in know? way over my head. <laughs> yeah, I just exactly. like have yeah. a vision and a, and a belief. And so I actually the whole like, especially first part of the book, like as you're building these things, yeah. I'm like underlining everything. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. So I, mean, I I wanted to write a book that was first and foremost like the book that I wish that I had. But then beyond that, I just I I've just seen so many of the same stories. I've seen so many people that look they want meaning and purpose in their lives they want to do something that has significance they they want to do work that that matters be it in the walls of their own home or around the world um but we have a a, a, a few problems there firstly the world is scary we're like man <laughs> it's hard and there's crazy things happening and like trump or whatever and people are freaked out by all that and so they 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 kind of hide in yeah. in some ways and then there's this sense of I'm only one person. I can't possibly make a, a, a difference of any kind. And then there's this deep stuff of, and even if I was, I was motivated, I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm broken. I'm scared. I'm insecure. I mean, all the rest. And yet people believe, like, goodness gracious, like, could I actually live a life that is having meaning, that's inspiring people, that is, that is doing something positive? And, you know, could I find joy in that? But so many folks are just terrified of, like, of just making that first step, kind of saying yeah. that, that uh, first yes. And so my hope is to be their, their guide in helping them really 
uh, journey through this whole this this whole process here. And I think that the uh, the uh, book offers this amazing practical plan that just helps you really step out and just realize that you were made for these times. There's a special reason why mm. you are alive today. This is not about you know wishing for the heroes of our history. This is about you right now. And then there's all these great you know tools th- throughout it and themes that I uh, that I uh, cover that I think will help people really just kind of take that you know next leap out. Man, I think so too. I mean, I, I I really feel that way coming away from the book, and I'm glad you wrote it. And yeah, oh man, yeah, thank you. For people who are maybe that's what they're wrestling with today, like right now, sure. they're like, "Crap, I feel overwhelmed by the world, and I don't know if I have what it takes, but I, yeah. I maybe have this spark of something." Yep. What kind of action step would you give them today, or or even just a, a first step? Yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, there's so much stuff from from the book that kind of speaks to this. I would say some of the first things um, is really uh, recognizing the resistance that that you are going to face when you kind of make that first step. That there is a voice in your head that is saying you are not good enough, you are not capable enough, no one likes you, you can never do this. And actually learning how to really turn pro and fight back against that against those uh, those uh, voices. So I find that uh, a kind of a unique tip of just like even writing a letter to yourself when you're in your most inspiring moment of like, I, I'm going to do this and I'm awesome, you know, writing it out to yourself and having it. Cause then in 12 oh, hours, yeah. like the like next day you're like, I'm crap. There's no Dang. way that I like that I can ever do this. And actually a letter to yourself of like, Nope, I can actually do this. There's something here. I'm not here on accident. You know, I think that is such a really, really unique tool. Um, and then a lot of what I talk about in the, uh, the uh, book as well is about building kind of key relationships around you and, and finding inspiring people to surround yourself with that we're just not meant to, to uh, do things on our own and so there's just something so valuable about having others around you and I kind of liken it to Harry Potter right where like Harry was amazing but it was because of the other folks around him oh, that, yeah. that he was able to actually do all of this and of course there is the whole conspiracy that um, that Hermione should actually be the like main character <laughs> of, of the Hermione whole book yeah Rachel. but I mean all in all like it is um I mean that is it. I mean this. The, so many of these amazing stories happen to be about one uh, one uh, person, but it's also about who is around them. And I just don't believe that unless you can gather a few folks around you to say, "I trust you," and "I'm with you," and let's 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 do this side by side. I mean that is such a kind of critical piece that in our current American culture that's so individualistic, I think that we oftentimes take on too much on ourselves, you know, without really meaning to. Okay, wow. Isn't Justin the best? Here's something that Justin said that I'll be spending the next week or month or maybe even year reflecting on. He said, I came to this point in my life where I knew that I could no longer deny for others what I could demand for myself. This statement marked the beginning of Justin's journey. And it kind of got me thinking, what is the question? What is the statement? What is the conviction that began my trajectory or maybe was the statement that will begin the next trajectory of my life. I don't know what that is, but I'm thinking about that. Maybe that's something for you to think about too. Take the time to think about what gets you excited and hopeful about the future. How are you taking this example and moving toward work that matters? Take Justin's advice and be careful to recognize the resistance that will happen to you when you try to take your first step to do your important work because your work is important. 
If you connected with this episode, do yourself a favor and follow Justin Zarati on Twitter and Instagram. Oh, and also, here is a really cool secret. Justin's upcoming book that we talked about in the episode is available for pre-order, but nobody has publicly announced it yet. And so that means that you can be among the very first to pre-order it by searching for Made for These Times, a startup guide to calling character and work that matters on Amazon. I'm telling you, you're not going to want to miss out on all the stories, wisdom, and inspiration inside. Justin is truly one of my biggest role models and reading his newest book only fueled my love for his heart because I feel like Justin has already gone through the things that I'm going through right now. Anyway, enjoy. He's the best. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. You'd also love some of our older episodes, including our conversation with civil rights activist Linda Sarsour and life coach Natalie Norton. You can find those episodes in all of our other episodes on Apple Podcasts, soundsgoodpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast was created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good Good Good, a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio mix and edit the show, and Christy Karen Brock provides production support. You can get lots more helpful stories on social media by following us everywhere at Good 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 Co. and visiting our website, goodgoodgood.co. And don't miss out on our Good News shirt collection. In partnership with our friends at Known Supply, we recently released a limited edition set of shirts for men and women with the phrase good news and custom chain stitching across the chest. It looks so good. Learn more and shop our good news apparel at knownsupply.com slash good news. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and do some good this week. And we'll be back next week with another inspiring story from an incredible person. Sound good? Sound good. 